Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very cool and exciting episode. I think it's exciting because we get to talk about sleep today, which is, as I was just telling Eric, one of my obsessions and also his too, because he is the expert on this topic. So we're going to chat with Dr. Eric. Oh, crap. Now I'm going to say it wrong again. Prather? Did it. You did it. Okay. <laughs> I had Prather stuck in my head, but I did it you right. You Yay. can switch it to that if you want. I actually don't care. No, I want to get your name right. That's important for us at Radically Loved. Rosie would back me up because she had a childhood full of her last name. Well, her first name too, because I think she originally, her her name is Rocio and everyone mm-hmm. would get it wrong in grade school. So yeah. she now goes by Rosie. Anyways, names aside, which are important, we're going to talk today about the sleep prescription, which is Dr. Eric's book. He's also holding up a copy. <laughs> if you say something, it'll switch to you so we can see your face too. Oh, that makes sense. That. Yeah. I didn't, didn't think oh. of that, but yeah, it's good <laughs> to know. All the bells and whistles of Zoom, it's fun. <laughs> So let me give you a little bit of background. Eric is a world-renowned sleep scientist and an expert clinician. He has cracked the code to help even the most restless of sleepers. That includes me. So I'm I'm selfishly really excited for this episode to get even the most restless of sleepers a good night's rest. He's also a sleep psychologist at UCSF Insomnia Clinic. And he there, he uses empirically validated behavioral treatments to promote long-lasting and restorative sleep. So the sleep prescription is your book. It just came out in November, correct? Came out on the 1st. Yeah, November 1st. Congrats on birthing this baby. You never know know where life's going to take you, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. (laughs) A whole other episode on that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Good. Well, we're happy to have you. It's funny. So when I picked up your book and started to read it, I, of course, turned to the, I think this is the last chapter section about staying up late. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. Was it because I am a one of those sleepers that it's like kind of read you probably hear this all the time i have a noise machine i cover my eyes i have ears plugs earplugs i have blackout curtains it has to be like a deprivation cha- sensory deprivation chamber for me to yeah. sleep and i'm a very light sleeper and a finicky sleeper so and i go to bed early and i have this kind of anxiety as you talk about in the book over getting to bed early cuz i want to get a full 8 hours of sleep and i want to get up early i've always been an early bird And I'm sure you have some opinions on this, but I think that kind of militaristic approach to my sleep habits might be some of why I'm experiencing not insomnia. I don't think it's that bad, but like if I were to compare my sleep score with my husband's, he regularly scores a 90 and I regularly score in the seventies. 
what in the heck is going on? That's that? a, I mean, well, I mean, I guess so. Like, sounds like you have like a low, like a low level anxiety about this. And you're like very militaristic around like ensuring that everything is in the right place. Right. Like, and that, like that happens so commonly with people with insomnia proper is like, because they're kind of chasing sleep, like sleep has become really unpredictable. And so like a lot of mental effort goes into it. There's this concern that they need to be in the right place at the right time with all the variables and kind of this perfect, perfect alignment. Um, because if it's not, then they're going to have kind of this terrible night sleep and they're, you know, they're going to be useless tomorrow. And, you know, then it's going to turn into the next day and the next day and like that kind of spirals. And so that is challenging. I mean, I, I do try to preach the idea that like, you know, we're kind of built to sleep, right? Like sleep is so fundamental to our survival. Like we can survive longer without food and water than we can survive without sleep. Like it's just, it's how it is. And, and so there are lots of kind of parts of our biology that regulate this, that ensure that we will eventually fall asleep. But like our brain is really, you know, we can override that. Like the anxiety can override that. Like we're not the same as kind of our, our ancestors where we didn't have as many things we just worried about survival where now we're worrying about like what are people saying on social media what about the election like what am i going to you know make for lunch tomorrow and all of those things can get in the way and you know the concern about sleep can certainly drive those with respect to kind of your sleep score and the difference with your husband i mean like what what are you using <laughs> like, uh-huh. sleep score or what yeah no that's a good question and actually I was reading about that this morning in terms of your approach to when people start to work with you getting away from the digital sleep trackers and doing this manually by hand writing it down and kind of estimating to get your sleep score I'm basing that off of how I feel in the morning and also we have a sleep number bed which gives okay. us a sleep score so I yeah. always compare my sleep score with my husband's because To me, it's kind of hilarious that he doesn't care. He doesn't really have a routine. He does all the things that you would say not to do in terms of basic sleep hygiene, like he reads his iPad with the blue light glow in bed until like 11 p.m. next to me. And he's always on his phone and he like doesn't really pay attention to when and he's drinking caffeine during the day. So he's, he often has a latte at like three o'clock or four o'clock. And then me, the militant one with all of these things and, and our sleep scores are so different. Right. But I haven't yet committed to writing this down because I'm still slightly attached to my digital tracking devices, which I think so many of us are probably so many people can relate to, but But yeah, so those are some of the things that are different about the two of us. And I still find it really interesting that our sleep scores are so, so different. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it speaks to kind of how many factors are important for regulating our sleep. Like our sleep system can be really robust despite certain things, right? And it differs by person, right? And it's always funny that like someone who is a kind of a, a less than ideal sleeper weirdly is often paired up with someone who, you know, is like a really good one. And and then that just kind of feeds this like comparison of like, why can't I be like that? That sort of thing, the kind of thing you're describing. But it also, you know, oftentimes people that can have that ability to sleep so easily, despite any of those other things going on, you know, sometimes they're really sleep deprived. Sometimes their sleep is just really robust. And that's just kind of an individual difference. And it also means that like, 
no individual thing is going to make the difference, right? It's really about kind of trying to kind of set up your sleep in a way that is predictable and is good for you. So I always say that like sleep is really universal, but it's also personal, right? There are like things specific to you that you need to take into account. And some people are a little more anxious. Some people are a little more sensitive. And those things that kind of might muck around with your sleep also make you like probably pretty awesome in other ways, right? And so it's not about like changing all these things about yourself, but you know, sleep is so fundamental that there's probably a way to make headway despite that. Oh, I love the answer. Thank you for validating me. (laughs) No, seriously. So I wanted to know a little bit more about, because I mentioned digital sleep tracking devices and then your method of handwriting it down. And you provide this nice little chart to kind of mathematically come up with your sleep score. Can you tell us why you believe so strongly in doing that? It's a seven day experiment, right? Where you would track your sleep to get your sleep score. Yeah. So, so the the sleep diary that's in there, it provides information so that we can get a better understanding of how consolidated your sleep is with really the idea of like, for most people that have insomnia, they typically like to, to improve their sleep and to kind of ramp up their sleep drive, which is so critical for being able to fall asleep. You know, we often need to move their bedtime later, right? Which is like really counterintuitive, but we need kind of data to help make that estimate. And, you know, in the clinic, we have people keep sleep diaries for weeks, right? Like they, and and so we, what I've tried to do in this book is like distill the principles down to seven days. Cause that was like the, the framework that, so this book is like part of a series of books. And so they're all kind of framed this way, but for getting that information, we actually need as many days of information as data as we can. And so that's why it's the last chapter because we need people to complete their sleep diary every day to get that. But regarding like why people have to do it by hand versus a wearable device, it's not necessary. I mean, I think there's something to being kind of engaged in the process as like a, is your own personal sleep scientist. And for insomnia, it's often really subjective, right? So like if you you know, you look at your sleep number bed or like, you know, I use an aura ring and it, you know, it'll say like, oh, you know, you woke up 15 times during the night, but it's really just based on like my movement and my heart rate and that kind of stuff. And I have no recollection of this. That makes me, does that matter? Does it matter? Because we wake up a lot of times during the night and it doesn't affect necessarily affect our sleep. It could also be an artifact of the device. And so, you know, we don't want people to read too much into that. In fact, you know, some years ago, there was a, a term coined called orthosomnia, which is an insomnia that develops because people are using wearable devices. Because it, in fact, like, you know, especially the ones that give you information about your sleep architecture, right? I mean, it'll say, oh, you only got 15 minutes of deep sleep, right? That can be distressing to people. I mean, and it may be somewhere, you know, maybe you got less than normal, but the absolute numbers that are provided by these devices currently for around sleep architecture are just not up at, to the standard of what we would get in the sleep laboratory, which is like the gold standard, right? But, you know, people feel like it's that way. And so it's, you know, that that can be problematic, that can be distressing and can kind of be not going in the right direction when you're trying to get your sleep back on track. Certainly. Yeah. I also have an aura ring as well as the sleep number. <laughs> I, I spotted <laughs> it. I spotted it when you live. Yeah. The many devices that, that track my sleep. 
So I'm going to give this writing it down a try for a while and see how that goes. I want to dive into the topic of homeostatic sleep drive, which you talk about a sleep pressure and also circadian rhythm. And those are two different things that you're discussing. I think probably most of us are more familiar with the term circadian rhythm, but if you just give a brief overview of each and how they're different and why they're important. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of the two primary processes that like regulate our sleep. So our circadian rhythm is, you know, from what people, you know, surely heard about, particularly since we just had daylight savings and we experienced it in real time and we always do is kind of your internal clock. Right. And when we think about sleep, we think about kind of your alerting signals that happen throughout the day. So like, you know, when you, when you wake up in the morning, you know, your alertness starts to increase and then it kind of wanes as it get as sun, as the sun goes down. Right. And that's, that's your circadian rhythm playing a role. Like in, in sunlight plays an incredible role in kind of in training that rhythm, but other things do too. Like when you have your meal times and, and things like that. And the thing that also people think about when they think about their circadian rhythm is, is melatonin secretion. So your pineal gland kind of releases melatonin when it's dark out. And that kind of sets the table for your body to, it kind of cues it that, you know, it's, it's getting close to bedtime to go to sleep. The other process, which is independent of your circadian rhythm is called your homeostatic sleep drive. And I like to think of it as it's kind of like a balloon, like where you wake up in the morning, your balloon is flat. And then you, as you go throughout the day, it kind of builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up with sleepiness. Right. And we think we understand what that sleepiness is, a neurochemical in your brain called adenosine. And so adenosine builds up. And then, you know, when it gets to kind of a a really big amount, you feel those sleepiness cues, you go to sleep and it kind of drains out throughout the night. Right. Like, you, you know, drains out that sleepiness. And so those things together, when you're kind of your balloon is really big and your circadian rhythm alerting signals are really low, then you go to sleep. That's like a nice kind of set up sleep thing, right? But like when, you know, there's a change, when you you travel across the country in time zones or you have daylight savings, you can have this shift of like your circadian rhythm is not aligned with your homeostatic sleep drive. That makes sleep work less well, but can get back on track. But I mean, those are the two things that in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is what this book tries to distill, you know, what we capitalize on, because those are just part of your biology, right? And so we're just leveraging those to help people sleep in a more predictable fashion. And so is it fair to think of circadian rhythm as like, for example, I said, I like to go to bed earlier and I usually wake up earlier. So my circadian rhythm is different than my spouse's in that he's definitely a night owl and he sleeps in a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great example. So relative to your partner, you have a a more advanced sleep phase, right? And he has a more delayed sleep phase, right? And so there's people that are night owls. There are people that are, that like to get up earlier. They're like, you know, love that sunrise, our morning larks, but, you know, most people kind of fit are in the, on the middle, you know, like it's, there are people on the extreme end, like certainly in our clinic, you know, we get a number of people that are kind of have extreme delayed sleep phase syndrome. And so everything in their life is typically okay until like their job requires them to have an early morning meeting. And now like their, their life is not kind of aligned with their rhythm. And so we can try to shift their rhythm a little bit, but oftentimes it's genetically driven. And so it just becomes real challenging and trying to kind of manage your life because it's when rhythms are, when your circadian rhythm is kind of like in, in an extreme mode, oftentimes just the world isn't set up for you. Right. And it's like, it's really hard. Like it's really hard. And so it's, it's oftentimes people end up getting different jobs or constantly are working towards 
kind of that shift. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to speak to, in terms of building sleep pressure throughout the day, as it relates to the section on staying up late. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So if you did all the things in the steps, or if you were in our clinic, right, and you like kept the sleep diary, right, we would get an understanding of like, of the amount of time that you have opportunity for sleep. So like the time you go to bed to the time you wake up, how much of that is actual sleep? And sometimes people have some problems on the front end. So they get in, say they get in bed at eight o'clock, but they don't fall asleep till 11 o'clock. So that's like three hours of not being able to sleep. And then based on that information, we get something called someone's sleep efficiency score. And that's, I guess that's like the sleep score that you're mentioning. So it's like of the opportunity, how much of that was sleep, right? And for someone who has, you know, a good healthy level and is like under the age of 65, it's around like 85%. Like if you have 85% of your sleep opportunity is sleep, that like that's that's really great. But oftentimes people with insomnia, it's it's much lower. And so what we do is we we ensure that everyone has a stable wake time, right? So we want to kind of set someone's circadian clock by having a stable wake time. And that's basically when we're going to start where the balloon is going to start blowing up, right? That I talked about before. And so, but to get someone's sleep consolidation up higher, kind of their sleep efficiency score higher, we actually shrink the opportunity. So we keep the wake time the same, but we move the bedtime later, right? So, and that's all based on the data that we have from the individual keeping the sleep diary. And it's like on average. So we might decrease someone's bedtime. We'd say, oh, well, you know, if it takes you three hours to fall asleep at eight, and you sleep through the whole night, but it's like this three hour period, maybe we you know, don't let you go to bed until 11, right? That three hours. And what happens is that sleep balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger because now you're awake more and you're not lying in bed where you do get some of that kind of like that, some of that sleepiness seeping out of it. And so that pressure becomes really overwhelming to where if you do that over time, people are just like watching the clock, wanting to get in bed, right? They want to get in bed to go to sleep because they're so sleepy. And like, they know they can't go to bed any earlier than 11 in this case. And that's really a crazy shift in their brain, right? Like before starting this, they think, you know, sleep is completely unattainable, right? Like it's like this thing that they they haven't seen and or felt in, in years and years. And their experience of sleepiness is, is not one that's natural. It's, they just feel tired all the time, but they never feel sleepy, right? And there is a distinction there. But if you begin to do this, and this is really just based on everything we know about how the biology works, they get reacquainted with that sleepiness. And so what happens is if you get it right, like on the sleep timing, when they get in bed, they fall asleep quickly. They tend to sleep through the night. It may not be as much sleep as they want, but it's consolidated sleep. And it turns out that that consolidated sleep just feels better. It feels more restorative than that same amount of sleep or even a little bit more sleep broken up. Right. Like, and so as you do that, people begin to feel more confident that they can sleep. Right. It, like, it's like the, the, the ability to give someone back their sleep is like the best gift I've ever experienced because when people are able to sleep, everything else kind of opens up their life. Just everything's a little bit brighter. Right. Like, they're like better parents, they're better partners, they're more empathetic. We can deal with stress better. We're more creative, we're more productive. And so, this way of doing this, once we kind of get their sleep consolidated, we then begin to slowly back out that bedtime, right? We'll make it a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier until we see that like, look, if we make it too early, like eight o'clock, maybe you really actually can't fill up that whole time with sleep. And so we kind of find a sweet spot. It typically is like a little bit later than people 
were doing before. And that's because people with insomnia are so nervous about not getting sleep that they kind of like account for that time. They're like, well, you know, I only get five hours of sleep, but I better give myself like nine hours in bed because I need, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get those five hours. And so, but that's, that's part of the problem that undermines how sleep's supposed to work. So there's a couple of things that I'm hearing. One, setting your wake time is really yes. important. And you talk about this in the book as being the first thing that you do, I believe, right? And then secondly, I think I'm hearing you say, when you're delaying someone's sleep like this to compress the sleep time, maybe it's a shorter period, we're not laying in bed reading or sitting in bed watching TV until we can let ourselves go to sleep. We're not in bed at all. We're doing right. something else. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess the follow-up question then is like, what would you recommend somebody do with that time from eight to 11 PM that they usually (laughs) sit there in bed? What are they doing to kind of cool down, relax? I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is maybe like basic sleep hygiene kind of stuff, preparing, lowering the lights, that kind of thing. But that's a lot of time. <laughs> well, so, I mean, yeah, and I mean, it's a, you know, and it's a great point. And I, I mean, it is definitely part of the kind of the discussion, right? Cause like people are like, what do you like? And, and it's something that's like, it's like an identity thing. They're like, I don't stay up late. Like, I'm not a late person. Like, what do you mean? I'm going to have to like, wait, like what you're like, it's so dark. It's so late. Like I never stay up that late. Like, what am I possibly going to do? And, you know, one of the things that we have to be careful about is some people are like, oh, well, you know, I'll just work later. And it's like, no, like, like, you know, and so it's really about one, making sure that we demarcate like a specific transition period. It is so common for people to just feel like they can just like shut down, like, like, like closing a laptop. It's like, okay, laptop's done. Brain closes, go to sleep. And it just doesn't work that way, you know, and it's not supposed to work that way. And so, you know, because it requires a lot of kind of environmental and kind of ritual type things that tell your body what to do. I mean, your body, your brain is like a predicting machine. It's like just constantly taking in information from the environment and trying to figure out what it should be doing to kind of keep you alive, right? And keep you to, and let you thrive, right? And so the more predictable the information can be, the better their predictions are. In that way, a lot of things that go on in the environment help tell us when we're supposed to go to sleep. And so it's important to kind of build in that time to allow you to kind of wind down and do things in a consistent manner so that your brain begins to learn like, oh, when I do this, it means this, right? Like when I brush my teeth at night, like it means we're getting closer to bedtime or, you know, something like that. But I mean, I think, again, getting back to the idea that like sleep is universal, but personal, it's really not about the things that people do, though, of course, there are some no, you know, things you shouldn't do, but it's like, what feeling are you trying to produce? I always use the example where like, I always thought reading was like the thing, right? I was like, oh, like you just try reading something. And like, for me, it's like two pages and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't, I can't stay awake. Other people, they're like, oh, I'm not sleeping at all, but like I've read 10 books this week. And like, what what kind of world is this? And so, you know, I've like learned over time that like, no, it can't just be like something. I mean, I so basically I give like a menu of things. I'm like, okay, like maybe reading, maybe listen to music. Maybe I had someone who like was really into sewing. And so she would just do that, you know? And for her, it was just really meditative. And, Mm -hmm. but there was like a line where she, sometimes she'd get into like a flow state and like, it would be four in the morning and she's just like, 
keeps going. So, you know, we, it's kind of back and forth of trying to figure out like what works for people. Cause the idea is to really produce this kind of low arousal, kind of slightly positive feeling. And that there are some kind of things that everyone likes, but like, it's not that way. And so like, for me, it's like watching television that I've seen before. I'll like rewatch the office over and over and over. And it's that kind of thing where like, you know, watching TV is fine. There is concerns about blue light. Some people are really sensitive to that. And so if you're someone that's sensitive to that, then you should put a filter on it. But for me, it's really about the content that people are consuming, right? Like that kind of reward system that in our brain that like keeps us coming back. That's what we want to avoid. Internet, social media, like it's designed to keep you coming back. That's how it makes its revenue. And so it's usually something to like avoid for most people. Same with like Netflix and like binging series. This is not the time to do that because you're trying to wind down. But other things that are relaxing to you, those are all fair game because we're just trying to produce that kind of relaxation to let your body go, like to let let your mind go and allow you to drift off to sleep. Yeah, thank you. So can we uh, dive a little bit deeper into the importance of keeping a wake time consistent seven days a week, including weekends when you probably want to sleep in or think, I'm going to catch up on my sleep that I lost this week? Yeah, I always like to preface that, like, if you don't have sleep problems... It's okay. Like you can probably sleep in there. I mean, you know, the need to sleep in on the weekend is usually a symptom of like not getting enough sleep during the week. Right. So that's something you could address, but like people have like busy lives and like, it's, you know, people do it all the time. I mean, there is, though there is kind of like, there was a paper that came out this week that suggested that that kind of difference, that social jet lag that people put themselves in may actually be really common, but also like a risk factor for disease states. Right. So it's, that aside, if, if you have insomnia, you know, we really want to try to get things as predictable as possible. And, you know, though, you know, some people may hear that like, oh, you should keep a, a stable wake time and a stable bedtime. I really focus on the wake time because we can control that, right? Like we, we can control what time we wake up in the morning. And again, it kind of sets in line our circadian rhythm. It helps entrain it. It helps set in line kind of when your sleep balloon is going to build up. And which is different than the kind of stable bedtime, because if you have insomnia, like that's distressing. Like this idea that I'm like, oh, and now you have to be in bed at 10 o'clock and people are like watching the clock and they're like, it's a little bit closer. It's a little bit closer. I'm not feeling sleepy. Oh my gosh. Like, why what am I gonna do if I don't fall asleep? And so kind of taking that effort out of it, but the wake time seems to be just like a great way to kind of help stabilize the system because we use the same amount of energy typically day to day. And so people will eventually be, get sleepy around the same time each night just because we're humans. And so it's a good way of kind of regulating the system and keeping an anchor for kind of layering on these other things that we do in clinic or are mentioned in this book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious, just briefly, if you'd touch on the subject of napping. And I yeah. <laughs> I have a guess about what you might say in terms of like bioindividuality, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on napping. Oh, what's your guess? That it's bioindividual and it kind of depends on your sleep circadian rhythm. And I also think a lot about, well, that's my guess about what you might say. And I'm assuming a lot there. But then I also personally think a lot about like the Spanish, the kind of European yeah. Spanish siesta. And yeah. I actually just went to Spain with my husband. So I got to experience that. Although I didn't sleep, I got to experience the city or the yeah. inhabitants of, of the country kind of sleeping or taking breaks in that afternoon. And that different lifestyle that seems much slower, although then dinner's really late for them. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's 
It's so interesting to me that folks who can nap, like I kind of go in and out of this ability to nap, or it feels like I need to nap. And then again, I always compare myself to my spouse. (laughs) He always says, I can't nap. I'm just not a napper. It like stresses him out when I bring it up. So yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on napping. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, all all of that is true for sure. Um, I mean, napping in and of itself isn't like a bad thing, right? I mean, it's shown to kind of like increase alertness. It can help with memory and learning all the things that sleep does, it is interesting, like in some of these cultures where it's kind of built into it, it really falls along the circadian dip that we experience as humans, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a learning dip that happens. That's typically where these siesta cultures have that kind of time built in for that. But as you mentioned, like dinner's later and kind of their bedtimes are later typically. And so for me, it really underscores like we can only make so much sleep. And so you know, napping can be challenging for someone who has insomnia, who's trying to like, is really distressed about the fact that they're not sleeping, right? And so like, if that's the case, stealing some of that sleepiness out of your sleep balloon is not helping, right? Like you want it to be in the night, right? It's like snacking before dinner, the appetite's just not there. And so the expectation can't be that like, I'll fill up this whole nighttime space with sleep if I got a bunch of it early on. And the same is true in those cultures. It's just like culturally accepted. They've like broken it up a little bit. And I think that's great. I mean, naps can be really helpful, but they can also be a symptom, right? So like, why do people feel the need to nap? I mean, sometimes it's a habit and they kind of just get into it and it doesn't really bother them. It's just like something they do. But sometimes it's like kind of this overwhelming sleepiness that they have to nap. And so if that's the case, like, hey, what's going on with your sleep? Is Are you sleep deprived? Do you have less opportunity? Do you have a sleep disorder? Like, so like napping, that daytime sleepiness is often is a symptom of like, if someone has obstructive sleep apnea, that's not being treated. Right. And oftentimes people don't know, like in my clinic, it's like the only time people find out they have obstructive sleep apnea is like when their spouse like drags them in and they're like, Oh my God, you're like not breathing during the night. Like you got to do something. And, and so, you know, I mean, then it's like, Oh, well, you know, the nap was clearly your body's response to that problem. I don't think it's as black and white. I don't know if it's a, bio-individual difference. But I mean, I think uh, it can be helpful and hurtful depending on what what it's for and why it's happening. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) I wanted to, to dive into the subject of, I think you call it worrying earlier in the day, or I guess more specifically, you talk about different busting stress with micro breaks. Yeah. Micro breaks throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Worrying early is hard to say. I found like when I did the audio, I did the audiobook part of this book, which was like a crazy experience. And it turned out there's lots of words I can't say. I had no idea. <laughs> it's like a put on the pressure. I was like, wow, terrible. Tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, so around the worrying early piece, I mean, one of the challenges when people have insomnia is right. Like, our, you know, in the middle of the night or when you get in bed, like your brain just like is really active. And it's never about like good things. You know, it's never like, oh, replaying this like really special, beautiful moment that I've had in my life. It's like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do tomorrow? Or like, what am I worried about? Like coming on this podcast or the ruminations about things that, you know, should have gone differently. And we're not in a, our best mind space to kind of tackle those things, right? Like it's kind of misplaced. It's a natural thing to happen, but it's not helpful. And it that effort really kind of gets in the way of people's ability to sleep. And so one strategy, which, you know, has been shown to be effective is like actually scheduling time for that, like being intentional about that worry, because it's natural to worry, but you can be intentional about when it happens. And so having people take like a 20 minute period in their day, not too close to bedtime, kind of where they say like, look, I'm just going to worry about these things. 
and just that's all you do. And you use it the whole time. It's not like, oh, I don't have anything to worry about. Like you sit that time and you worry and whatever happens during that time. But when it's over, it's over. And you're like, okay, now I'm moving on to my next thing. So what happens in the middle of the night, you know that you did that and you can you can help compartmentalize it and say like, look, I scheduled this. I did this already. This is not the right time to do this. And I have it scheduled for tomorrow when I'm like better at my more thoughtful self. And that type of habit seems to be helpful in people like letting go and like not going down that kind of rabbit hole of worries. And then the micro break thing, I think is really important. I mean, one, we just like should be kinder to ourselves just generally. And one way of doing that is like being intentional about kind of taking a breath, right? And not, and something that's around stress management, like stress is such a important contributor to sleep problems. And so if you can just kind of schedule in these micro breaks that can be short and you can do something kind for yourself, whether it's kind of a short meditation or just like watching the birds or like, you know, getting a breath of fresh air or just kind of like a moment of quiet where your emails and dinging that can be helpful in like allowing yourself the capacity and the resources to fight off the stressors of the day. Cause we can't remove those things. Right. So what we need to focus on is like our ability to cope. And so I like to think that those micro breaks can help kind of keep our bottle of coping kind of a little bit more full so that as the day goes by, um, we have something at our disposal. Yeah. Thank you. So two more questions and then I'll let you go. I want to talk about the caffeine fix or the idea of the caffeine fix. So, you know, we talked about that afternoon slump. It's pretty normal for us human beings. And many of us use, I'm not immune to this. I try to make it decaf, but I know there's still caffeine in decaf. Um, (laughs) But you talk about a technique of sticking your head in the freezer. Will you tell me about this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the most popular question that I've had in in, in, in all of this. Yeah. No, I mean, right. So the the idea is that we need to try to find things that aren't caffeine in the reason it we don't want to go with caffeine particularly late is because it stays in your system for a long time right like it stays in your system the half-life is six hours so if you have like a double espresso at 4 p.m at, at 10 p.m you still have a single espresso in your system right so that that can definitely get in the the way of your sleep i mean clearly not your spouses but you know most people's and so like what can we do what's what's an alternative and so one that so novelty matters i think like and then kind of like we're built to kind of experience different stimuli that can be alerting. And so one of those is cold exposure, right? So like think like polar plunge or like something like that, like that's really invigorating for people. And part of that is because it upregulates your sympathetic nervous system, kind of your stress response system and stress, the stress response system in and of itself is like not bad. It's really adaptive and it can help you kind of stay alert. And so in thinking about this and what we know about cold exposure, kind of the the novel intervention that I thought of was, uh, you know, try sticking your head in the freezer. That kind of brief cold exposure is one, something that is likely novel to you and does have a physiologic impact and potentially can kind of get you through that doldrums of the day. But, you know, if you don't have a freezer on board, you can also get your blood pumping, do maybe a brisk walk that will produce the same kind of thing, especially as the, as it's getting colder outside, you'll still get that cold air on your face and that can probably get you through it too. Yeah. I was going to say, so how long should I stick my head in the freezer for? <laughs> Tell the Till the freezer starts to to yell at me to close it. Yeah, well, that that would be a good yeah. If you start seeing things thawing in there, it's probably been too long. But but uh, no, yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's like a a known amount. I mean, I think in the book we I say like you know as long as you can stand it. But obviously, you don't want to get freezer burn. Sure. Use some good judgment. 
Yeah. <laughs> Use your common sense, folks. <laughs> so last question. I wanted to read the dedication to your book because I keep coming back to it. I know it's like, I love dedications. They're just so sweet. And it, it relates to the last question. So the dedication is this book is dedicated to my wife, Michelle, and my two boys, Spencer and Jackson. You may disturb my sleep at times, but you also give me the confidence to dream. And I... I love this so much because I think it speaks to the ethos of radically loved. And the reason Rosie created this podcast is this idea that we are all radically loved by God, source, universe, whatever higher power you ascribe to. And so, yeah, on behalf of Rosie, I'm asking you, how do you feel radically loved? Well, what a, thank you for saying that. Probably I was like so proud of that dedication, honestly. <laughs> but it also is like, it, you know, it, it really speaks to kind of the, importance of family for me and kind of like, like, I'm just like, I'm so lucky to be in this position. Like, you know, I never thought that I would, you know, get to do this. I never thought I'd get to meet you and it doesn't happen alone. Like I I'm like so fortunate to have had all these people throughout my career that have kind of gone out of their way to help me and been in my corner. And like, my family is like, you know, like if not for them, like for who, right. I mean, it's like, it's been a really special thing you know, they're obviously really special to me, but I just, I'm just, you know, just filled with gratitude just to be able to share this message and and potentially be able to help people, but just kind of go on this journey. So, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book, for sharing your work with us. I am loving it. And I really appreciate your time today. What one final, I guess, logistical question would be, where can people go to find more about you? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess I have a website. It's ericprather.com. It's not the greatest website, I'll admit, but I didn't know what I was doing. I'm at UCSF. Uh, You can definitely look at my name. I'm everywhere on that. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in the book, it's sold wherever books are sold. Small bookshops, big conglomerates. It's there. Excellent. We'll make sure we get all those links in our show notes. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.